Coming up after the break, we speak with actor Jason Mewes about his new film, Vigilante Diaries. And later, the movie geeks tackle the merits of Brian De Palma's The Fury, what Spielberg might bring to a remake of West Side Story, and a few underappreciated titles from 1986. It's time to get your geek on. Movie Geeks United starts now. Vigilante's web videos went viral after he killed a rising Armenian syndicate. You wanted a war? Well, now you got one. Who's the target? The entire Armenian mob. They don't like me. Nobody likes you. Those dudes don't play. That psycho killed my baby brother. I want the Vigilante dead. This one's not going to be pretty. I'm game. Let's do this, man. Time to go back to work. It was insane. There were landmines and chip a blah blah. If you're talking, if you're talking, cause heights and awesome. Said you're coming after me. Don't bother. I'm on my way. Good luck. It turned out even, you know, better than I expected because again we got the cast and crew screening, and um, I was super stoked because they went out of, you know, they went out of state and they shot a bunch of stuff. Um, I didn't get to go and, and be out there, and so when they came back and um, got everything finished, and I got to sit down and, and see the see everything finished and the stuff they shot when I wasn't there. I mean, it it turned out. It turned out, I think, really good and fun. It's, it's definitely a fun, uh, fun movie. Uh, I feel so. Yeah. So, and it has a really unique uh, origin. And I'm wondering if you could tell me a little bit about how this project got started. So, so the what you know, it started off as a passion thing, passion project, and 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 for us to have some fun. Uh, Christian Sesma and Paul Sloan are, are buddies of mine. Um, and Paul and Christian came up with the, the, the idea, and, and we sat down, and I got to have a little bit of business, but we started off as a web series. Like, we were trying to get money together, and it was going to be a movie at first, and then we were going to try to do it as a TV show, and, and then we were like, well, let's just shoot these little short, uh, uh, you know, like six-minute uh, shorts at, at web series, and let's put it out there and see how it goes, and you know, it's uh, it was a lot of fun. We we shot it, and I think it turned out awesome. Even with the small budget, we had like no money, um, running around and, and putting the GoPros and how we, we came up with the ideas to shoot things and the weapons 
um, and how that looked realistic. And, and Christian had a great team that he put together that helped shoot it. And then, yeah, it was out there uh, for a few, and, and someone said, asked, I guess, offered Christian some money for financing. I'll, I'll be honest, I'm not sure exactly how that all came together, the actual um, you know, money and, and Christian and, and making it a, a feature movie. Um, but, yeah, he called and told me, and he was like, hey, I got money, you want to do the feature, come shoot some more stuff. So I came and shot more things, and I don't know, I think, uh, yeah, it just, it, it turned out really good from what, again, it started off as a show, like, I forget what we, we had, like, you know, the web series, we had, like, 20 grand or whatever for the episode, a couple episodes, and and uh, really were able to now then, I don't know, you know, with the small amount of money he got, I feel like it, it looks really good from where it started. And not that I don't think where it started wasn't looking good, but I'm just saying, like, with the money, and I know it wasn't a lot of money, um, the action and, and the weapons and some of the, like, the RPGs and stuff were being fired. Was, yeah. It, it, uh, it turned out really fun, I, I think. So, and again, it started as, as a web series to now a feature with awesome cast. You got Michael Matson and, and Michael Jared White and, and Rampage and, uh, you know, Danny Trejo. So it, it's, it's really awesome. Yeah, I watched it, and I, I I actually didn't know that Michael Madsen was in it, and he's the first face you see in the movie, and I was like, you're kidding me, that Michael Madsen's in this? So yeah. I got excited right away, and the production value is amazing. It really is. It is. Um, I was just saying, that one shot of the house of where the villain is, like like the, the helicopter shot going up the mountains mm. where they were and stuff. Again, I didn't get to go, of course, do that fun stuff. I think I was out of town or something. Um, and again, they shot some of the action sequences. I wasn't in that in that scene, but I don't know. Again, I was excited. I sat down. I'm like, wow, it went from this, and now look at you guys. And yeah, the production value is really nice. Uh, I mean, first of all, it's really cool that you're in the middle of a of a, a kick-ass action movie. <laughs> that has to feel pretty good. Yeah, but, totally. Uh, and your character too. What 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 appealed to you? What did you like most about playing Michael in this movie? Um, I don't. I think it was it, for me. It was definitely fun. Of course, to a few times to get to, uh, you know, do a little running around and stuff. But I, I would say definitely it's something like I really, honestly, I really want to direct. And, and actually, I'm hoping um, it, it's not set in stone, but it's looking really good that we might got financing. A buddy of mine in London, uh, we we came up with an idea. He wrote it. He's been get, trying to get financing together for me to direct. Cause I really want to direct and. Uh, I directed a PSA and a music video and a short movie and really want to direct the feature. So I'm saying uh, I'm really stoked because it looks like that might happen. But again, don't quote me on that. It's not set in stone, but it's looking good with the financing. Point of me telling you all that is I'm saying I think that was a big part of the fun is, you know, even though he was running around as a web document tour or whatever you want to call it, um, it was fun because it seemed, again, that's something I'd really like to do. I don't want to say necessarily I'd love to do a documentary and stuff. I would definitely like to do a documentary about a vigilante, of course. But, uh, again, it was sort of like the directing is my point. I got to run around with a camera, shoot things, and document things. And it's something, uh, you know, again, it's something I feel like I really want to do. Is like I love running around and shooting stuff like whenever I'm on on the movies with Kevin, I always shoot a ton. I mean, recently, we've been, they always hire, of course, a professional, 
because um, they know how to edit and do all that stuff in, for behind the scenes. But uh, for years, I've always been since Clerks 2, um, I've always grabbed the camera and shoot behind the scenes stuff because I just love doing that. So I'm just saying I feel like it was something I loved doing, and I got to throw that on there. And I love that, yeah. you know, he had a command center, like, you know, in the – he had his own little um, mobile command center, and before that, he had his command center at his house. And again, that's stuff that I love. Like, I actually have like a man cave that's like, you know, it's obnoxious, but I got like eight monitors and like three computers hooked up to it, and I have Xbox here and PS4 <laughs> there. And again, it's more for me just playing and watching TV and video games and surfing the web. But you know, for him and and there, it was like it was his command center where he did all his work. Um, so I don't know. I think I dug all that. I dug all yeah. that stuff. So, well, you know, you have. I think this. Is, I only have time for one more question. So, so I want to ask you because I just recently saw you at uh, MegaCon, uh, and you oh, no. have a you have a great relationship with your fans. Uh, Obviously, and and you know the fans were the ones that started uh, supporting the the web series of Vigilante Diaries. Uh, so I'm wondering, yeah, in all of your encounters with various fans, do any memorable encounters come to mind? I, uh, you know, I, I, I don't. I mean, there's a ton, honestly. It's like again, each one I feel like. I guess there's more than one. Uh, there's not one specific, but a, there's a handful of similar ones. Um, you know, it's when people come up and, and they're, like, crying because their son or brother or daughter or what have you uh, has been struggling with drugs or even, you know, someone had a, a person that was really sick and, and, and uh, they say that they watch the movies or they've been listening to podcasts and keep, you know, talking on the podcast and talking about being sober and chatting my days and all that. And so when people come up and they're crying and saying that our movies or my podcast has kept someone happy or sober or kept them alive, even sometimes they say, and they're mm. crying and they're shaking, the, that always stands out. You know what I mean? There's always that, that not always, but there's, uh, you know, a handful of those situations that's happened to me over the couple of years past couple of years and then also military i always did when people come up and say hey when we were in iraq man we were really struggling but me and my whole troop would watch the you know mall rats over and over again so again like stuff like that is like wow taking a movie for entertainment to like people saying like wow it got us through war it got us it saved this person's life and maybe not saved their life but maybe you know but stuff like that is always it stands out to me so yeah well, I appreciate what you do, man, and congratulations on a great movie. Awesome. Thank you so much, man. You have a good day. You too, my friend. Bye-bye. Thanks for tuning in to Movie Geeks United, everybody. We are taping this on a Sunday evening, Sunday the 19th of June. Earlier this morning, it was reported that the actor, Anton Yelchin, uh, 27 years old, was killed in kind of like a freak uh, accident with a car where mm-hmm. he had his car in neutral in his driveway. He exited the car and somehow it rolled backwards and and caused trauma that led to his death. And he was right. dead on the scene for some time before he was found by coworkers because he didn't show up at a rehearsal. I think that's what happened. 
Yeah, no, that's pretty fair. Exactly, exactly what happened. I mean, this is just such a freak thing and just such a. I mean, I'm sorry. This is this is a big loss because this is a guy who had um, made some really promising films, and you know, I hate I hate that they refer to him as Chekhov in the um, in every headline. Star, you know, he's a star. You know, a Star Trek Chekhov. I mean, I, I hate that because he's been in so many good movies before and after that. Let's go back. I mean, I'm, not, I'm talking about Charlie Bartlett. I'm talking about Alpha Dog. I'm talking about Middle of Nowhere. Let's be very honest. This was Jennifer Lawrence's best man um, in The Beaver and Like Crazy. I mean, this, this was the like this was an actor who really responded to her in movies. Um, not Liam Hemsworth in The Hunger Games or anything, but this is really like like a person that she had great chemistry with on screen. Um, there's also Green Room that just came out that he was very good in. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of promise here. There's a lot of stuff that that, that, that hinted at the um, to the future that this is a guy who was in it for the long game. I liked him in uh, in Fright Night. <laughs> I thought there, I thought there is the Fright Night. It, it, it's very interesting you bring that up because he was in Fright Night. He was in a lot of big movies, not just Star. He was in The Terminator, The Salvation. I mean, he was in a lot of things. But he he was a good actor. Um, this isn't one of those things, you know, because he's dead, we're going to say good things about him. No, he was a good actor. Um, I don't think that's a, that's a stretch to say that. And I think that's And he'd been acting a long time since he was a kid. Yeah, yeah didn't, he, didn't he premiere in Hearts Atlantis? And we just talked about the movie the, the other week. We brought that movie up. Yeah, I mean, he was actually in stuff before that, actually, I think. There's some, like, smaller movies before that. But, no, Hearts Atlantis. I remember him in the ER. Yeah, yeah, there was a memorable. I think that's his first role. In it's terrible. You know what? What a way. You know, you live your whole life, and he didn't live a long life. And then you end up dying because you get pinned by your own car. That's mm-hmm. a terrible it's just way like to go. What, what, what happened down the street for me? With the guy got eaten by an alligator, and that made national headlines. That like literally happened like half a mile away from my house. And I'm thinking to myself, you live your life that long. And you get in, end up being eaten by an alligator. It's just like life, man. Like what the yeah, hell? Fate is a bitch. <laughs> there you go, yeah, folks. Guess, there you go. <laughs> Your philosopher at large. Okay, before we get to other stuff, here's uh, something interesting to me: that the two best things on television this year both involved OJ, because I watched that. <laughs> That five-part ESPN documentary, O.J. Made in America. I watched it, too. It's probably like nine, eight and a half, nine hours total. Oh, yeah. wow. Yeah, it's something else. Uh, it's, it's it's ridiculously complete. Uh, they, yeah. They, I mean, I I have to be honest. I kind of, I, I didn't just kind of skip over. I did skip over the first hour because it was all about his, his, uh, you know his early career, and I wasn't really interested in that. But all the rest of it uh, was was pretty good. It was pretty great. I'm yeah, just not fourth, interested in sports. The, the fourth <laughs> and fifth ep- the fourth and fifth episode was really good. And uh, I mean, the fifth episode is valuable too because it it uh, tells you all the aftermath of, after the trial, leading up to his mm-hmm. other arrest. And it was fascinating to see how people were interacting with him after his trial. Like there were still people that I, not for any kind of conscious. Uh, I, I doubt they were conscious of it, 
they just knew that he was a celebrity, right? Uh, international phenomenon, especially after the trial, and they were just thrilled to be in his presence, <laughs> just based on that. Somehow they I thought, I thought that part was so interesting because it was uh, it was about uh, OJ finally, um, you know, accepting his race as something that he was part of. And right. then basically had to make his money off of autographs. Which, yeah, by the way, wouldn't the preponderance, preponderance of autographs, uh, you know, uh, devalue them in some way? And also, uh, I thought <laughs> I saw this. I said, "Well, uh, if he uh, if he was so good at doing autographs when he got the thirty three million dollar." You know, civil suit uh, decision. Why didn't he just sit down and do a million autographs? <laughs> he could have done that. Well, let me ask you a question, though. Let me. I mean, he goes. But I, I haven't watched the documentary. I did watch every episode of the FX show. And if you remember, the last FX show was very interesting. The last episode because you see that you know while he has won the case. His his life is finished. I mean, he couldn't get yeah. the reservation. They did that very on. artfully. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I thought that was actually very telling. Um, let me. Do they talk about? I remember seeing him interviewed in the late nineties, um, or the early two thousands, and he had to go to a horror theme convention to do autographs. Do they touch on that at all? It probably it probably that? shows image. It probably shows images of him at that <laughs> convention because it does show him. I thought that was and, so weird because I remember being interviewed. I've never done anything like this before. I mean, this is so weird. He said that. I mean, he's like, I mean, I've never had he's going to come out with a knife and blood all over him and everything. I mean, you know, he's going to go Robert England, you know, which essentially, crazy. essentially, he did do that when he wrote that uh, "If I Did It" book. Uh, another very interesting thing was hearing the, the people that he essentially confessed to. confessed to. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, leaving weird. no doubt that he did it. I mean, uh, yeah, and his father being gay, and I mean, there's a lot of, and the you know those the pictures of the crime scene, which they show the most graphic pictures that have ever been shown. I, I mean, yeah, those I pictures guess. aren't even. One of those pictures is not even on the internet. Like it, it, it's so graphic. Yeah. Um, so uh, it, it's uh, really uh, it's a deeper. Exploration than what People versus O.G. Simpson gave you, but the People versus O.G. Simpson was designed to do exactly what it did. So, it, and it didn't fail in any of what it set out to do. But this is this is just more in depth than that. Yeah. So we've gotten the the premiere narrative version and the premiere documentary version. Do you think this yeah. is the last we're going to hear of O.J. until he probably in a while? But, you know, until what, he basically dies in prison. Why this, I why assume this he's going to die in prison. I mean, I'm wondering why this year. You know, I mean, and I think these two things are this good because of hindsight. Yes. Because we're able to see a bigger picture, but mm-hmm. but they they both come out around the same time because this mm-hmm. premiered at Sundance in January. Right. When the People vs O.J. Simpson was still was just premiering itself. I, I don't think that they're going to give him parole because the the whole the whole thirty three year uh, you know sentence, which is 
you know, pretty, pretty. Uh, that's a big sentence for something like what he was, you know, uh, it was what payback. he was convicted for. It was definitely payback, and if it's payback, then that means there's going to be further payback with not giving him parole. I don't think anybody's going to give him parole. I can actually. And, and then you had interviews job. with the jurors, where the jurors admitted that they that that most of them voted uh, based on. Payback for Rodney King, right? Uh, I mean, yeah. they, they flat I mean, out admitted huge, it, and they said, "Well, do you thing. do you think that's right?" And they, they had no answer. I mean, that's just they just, they they just said, "I just did it, and that's the way it is." And you know, and uh, and then of course those same people, most of them said that he was completely stupid for getting involved in anything else. Right? You know, so, you know, and it is so, fasc- it is fascinating that that because we're of the age we are. We think, uh, well, who doesn't know about this? But a lot of people don't know. There are a lot of how people. big how big this story was. Basically, if and you're 25 we'll, or younger, you don't know it. Yeah. People know the Kardashian connection is what I've noticed. Like you know, people young at the young age, they know this whole you know there's a story that broke this week. He might be one of their. He might be the father of one of the Kardashians or something. Yeah. That broke this week, yeah, which makes them automatic, which it. makes them automatically dismissive of. Oh, so what? What's the big deal about OJ? That, that you know they don't understand. And I mean, we understood from a sensationalistic as- aspect back then, but I don't think even most of us understood the big picture and what was why this was such a seismic kind of event. Um, you know. And th- and that's what these two documentaries of uh, th- this uh, series and documentary has has brought mm-hmm. us. So, uh, D- uh, Jer- uh, who the hell am I talking to, Jerry? <laughs> <laughs> Decide, make a decision. Here. I got your way here. Uh, you saw De Palma. I saw De Palma. Now, I was kind of a little tip, not not really big big. I was hoping we'd do the show last Sunday because I had. Re- I, have you guys ever read this book that came out last year called De Palma, um, Brian De Palma's Foot Stream, A Life in Film by Douglas Cece? No. I haven't read it. Okay, I read this last week. Um, before, I, I watched the documentary this week, but I, I read this book. I had gotten this book because I saw a review of it in the Washington Post last year. I was like, oh my God, someone wrote a book on De Palma. I've got to get this. It's a university press book. It's overpriced by anybody's um, standards. Um, and, and, Jamie, let me just say that you and I could have written this book when we did nine years ago when we did our tribute show. It goes into analysis of each film, a chapter devoted to each film, you know, up till past. Um, and there, there's some interesting insights, but I think you and I could have written this book in 2007 when we did the tribute show that summer. I honestly yeah. believe that. We I mean, um, I, I, I know John Kenneth Muir could write a hell of an interesting book on who was our guest for all of those series episodes. I mm-hmm. don't know why he hasn't. He's just written blog posts, but he, there's a great book in him on De Palma. A great book on De Palma uh, uh, containing content that I thought was missing from the Bombeck documentary. Uh, I mean, the Bombeck documentary, and I know you feel the same way, is delicious for a De Palma fan. Like, yes. you and I both watching it, and we're just soaking it up. We're loving it. Mm-hmm. But it, in terms of a, a serious study of his work, it is not. 
I mean, I, I really don't think it is. Most of the anecdotes con- included in the film are 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 kind of fun, you know, fun. Mm-hmm. Oh, what was this actor like? The Cliff Robertson stories and all that kind of stuff. It's not a serious examination of thematically what he's all about, you know. It's uh, what, which I I, I regretted. Well, I, I regret that, and I don't know. And I got to be honest, I don't think Bombeck and Paltrow are the ones to do that. Um, right. I, I had no idea. You know, when you you were the one who broke this story about this documentary, um, at least that was the first I had, I had heard of it. So I was kind of stunned. I mean, I I think what I got, you know, there's a sort of a couple of weeks ago, I, you know, there've been a lot of interviews with De Palma because of this documentary. And one of the things that came right. out was that Bombeck and Paltrow have dinner with him once a week, every mm. week. I'm jealous. <clears throat> I'm supremely jealous. No, you have no idea. I was telling Adam Long this, um, um, because he was the one who actually let me, uh, you know, gave me a screener to watch this documentary. And, and I'm internally grateful to him. But, I mean, this is just... This is the, the documentary can be... I, to me, the documentary is this. It's the, he's like the cool uncle that you never had, that you meet at a party, and he tells you what he does for a living, and he tells you, hey, I made a movie with Amy Irving the other night. And it's like, oh, wow, who are you? Um, And that's kind of what it's like. Um, He has all these cool stories. Now, you know, it's not a serious examination at all, and I I hate to say it, we covered a lot of this stuff nine years ago. Well, we covered all the stuff that's not in the documentary. We we covered all the stuff that's yeah. in the documentary too, though, Jamie. Let's be very honest. We've covered. There are a couple of revelations, and I'm not. I, I guess because if people want to watch it, I'm not going to say it. There are a couple of interesting tidbits, like the thing with Cliff Robertson, or the thing with De Niro and the Untouchables. There was an interesting thing there, or um, Orson Welles, and you know, too. There's some little tidbits here and there that are interesting, but it's it is it isn't. It's a lot of fun. But it isn't in depth. Uh, you're absolutely right. It's not serious. And isn't it? And isn't it amazing? And I said this after I'd seen it to you guys. It's interesting how the documentary they make of one of the most visually spectacular directors in the history of the medium uh, is so bland looking. <laughs> it's like completely bland. But I, I think it was because they didn't exp- they didn't intend at first to actually do anything with it. They were just filming a conversation with him mm-hmm. because they wanted to get it on tape. They they weren't necessarily thinking we're going to make a movie out of this, or or maybe they weren't getting around to that to that at first, or it took them a while to say, okay, I think we got a movie here. But the way the way the actual interview shot, I mean, it, it looks like it, it looks shot, almost like right. a, cheesy, a cheesy corporate video made in the eighties for you know, <laughs> employees, training yeah. videos for employees. Yeah. <laughs> I watched. Uh, no, there, there, there's there's something to be said there. Now I had watched a couple of weeks ago. There's a scene on YouTube where they're talking about Dress to Kill, and they show Bombeck interviewing him. They actually show mm-hmm. Noah Bombeck talking to him. Um, but you have to cut that. I mean, I just know that just from doing industrial videos and corporate videos, you always cut the interviewer out. Um, but they had um, Bombeck interview. You could actually hear and see Bombeck um, asking yeah, the question. Yeah, and I'm, I'm about, just saying. I'm just saying. You you can watch a lot of videos now, you go on the New York Times website and see their five-minute uh, interview interviews with various people, right. and they're behind a really kind of sharp-looking backdrop. They're well-lit. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 De is sitting in front of God knows what. Uh, I think it's a fireplace in, in, in Yeah, Bombay something like that. He's not, he's not framed. 
he's not framed very well. I, I'm not saying that you can be De Palma-esque when you shoot an interview. I'm not asking them to like go above the Get a big overhead shot of it. But make it an attractive frame at least because we're going to be stuck looking at that for an hour and 40 minutes. That's one yeah. of the main reasons I'm not really high on seeing it. I mean, I think uh, I think I'm not a, I'm not a major fan. I think I think he's spotty at, uh, at best. Uh I mean, there's some movies I truly love, but uh they're generally in a certain period and that's it. But um uh I could see I guess the uh one of the plus sides is if you've never seen any of his movies on the big screen, going to see it at the theater just to get to see the clips on the big screen. Uh, uh, but uh, I don't you know. I don't like expect it. a you lot of visual like opulence I mean, I, in my documentaries I, I, for the most part. So I'm interested in hearing. I'm interested in hearing most of every director talk about their entire body of work. I mean, if they can look back at their I career, like I, mean, I, I think that. that's interesting. I like that they that it's basically just you know well I did this and then I started making movies and it's just every movie right down the you line. Still, I, so I you mean, still enjoy it. You still get that's enjoyment out way of it. To do it. It gets they speed up though because you don't really get a lot on Black Valley. Or, you know I don't think you get a lot on Femme Fatale even. Um, but you no. get, I mean it's like I mean they talk Black about Al- the, they talk at length about the movies that people love and they leave the ones that people don't love kind of well, by the wayside in I, some ways. I actually think though I would have appreciated more to hear more on passion just because I don't know what I mean I don't why you would you know I I hate to say it but it's kind of yes there are different actors in the movie but it's a lot. It, it, it is a lot like the French movie it's based on. I mean, there's not a lot. I don't think it's as different as he thinks it is. That's just me. But I had watched them close together in a period of a couple months. So the French movie was um, still Wait, in my mind. Wait, you're talking about Passion? Yeah. But, so Passion was, you know, Love Crime, I think, is what the original one was called. Yeah. Um, so it was still fresh in my mind, so I couldn't get over how alike it was. But I, but I will say this: after watching the documentary, I hope Passion isn't his last film. I, I hope to God it's not his last film. Um, I know this. Yeah, a, it is interesting. It is, and he was talking in this interview I read with him. He was talking about um, not really having the opportunity to direct anything, and he's been dying to direct another movie with Al Pacino for forever. And they mm-hmm. keep trying to do new things together, and that uh, they're in a meeting with HBO because they're going to do the Paterno thing. Uh, Joe Paterno, and it's mm-hmm. not even a meeting with HBO. They're sitting at a table reading, their first table reading as a group reading the script, and HBO executives keep butting in with suggestions yeah. and notes and stuff. And De Palma's like, can't we just read the script? And so he says, even HBO, even cable, uh, mm-hmm. he can't he can't make a movie like he wants to make it. Yeah. There is a movie he's working uh, I guess it's a, chi- uh, a movie that's going to be in chi- Lights Out that he's working on, I think. That was at least in the Washington Post the other day. I read there was an interview with him. And yeah, another Pacino. So yeah, who so, knows if it'll happen? You know. Um, I let me throw this out there, and there are a couple other things I want to talk about because I actually um, he is can is there someone like a Megan Allison or someone that can like just like go out and I, I would welcome fast somebody. track a fast track a project. 
Yeah, I mean, this, this is a guy who's never gotten his due. I mean, this documentary is probably the closest thing that he's ever going to have, as of right now, career vindication in this thing, in, this, in these retrospectives that are going on right. at the Metrograph and other parts of the country. This is it, Dean. He's not going to get the... He's never going to get his due. He's never going to get... I don't think... I would... I would roll... I would... I would roll over like and, and and blow my brains out if he ever got a thing from the Oscars, you know, a Lifetime Achievement <laughs> Award. He's never going to get that. The misogyny charge. It's true. Boom. He doesn't seem like the type that... It's... No, but the misogyny charges against him for that period mm. of time will never... I mean, whenever you bring the palm up, that's the thing that comes out. Those, the mm. misogyny. We will, I'll never forget, Jamie and I interviewed... It was Nancy Allen, right? And we asked mm-hmm. her the question... And I will never forget that pause before the answer. I will never forget that as long as I live. Um, mm. Well, we we, so. we also, I mean, she was also speaking from a history of being married to him. So, and well, we no, don't I, know I, I what what kind, what kind of problems they might have, you know, what kind of grudges might have been <laughs> played a factor in that analysis yes. of her. Look, she was married to Kellyanne Hurd, too. I mean, he... I mean, this guy really. I mean, could you imagine if they're still married? How good The Walking Dead would be. I mean, <laughs> could you? No, seriously, oh, yeah. we would be talking about The Walking Dead right now. I mean, it would be so far different. Well, I mean, the sequences would be good. I mean, there would be mm. these great sequences that we would be talking about to this day. But no, he missed out on that by by a good twenty years. But, um, <laughs> I think I think he's enjoying a renaissance amongst people like us and and others that are just discovering him. Mm-hmm. Um so and so I think he is getting some realm of appreciation in his own time which is encouraging. I mean how many directors get a feature documentary made of them that releases theatrically? So uh, yeah, uh, that's rare. I think, I think the tides are turning a bit. And, and, I think and to be I don't fair think about the, Oscars. the opportunity. To be fair about the special Oscar thing, I mean, if they can give a special Oscar to Hal Needham <laughs> and to and to Blake Edwards even, uh that had equally spotty careers, uh I don't see why they couldn't, you know. It, give it would to just Palmer. be nice. I mean I but having said that, I last Saturday I watched my D V D of Snake Eyes that I bought for our tribute show. And last night I watched The Fury. Um, the on a Fury is so silly. It's silly, but I want to talk about that. But I watched it. On he a think, he thinks so too. Um, yeah, but oh, that's good. The Fury. I watched The Fury, and then I watched The Hit. I had the, the Criterion version of The Hit that I've had for many years, and I watched that. That talk about a double feature. Um, that's quite a double feature. Um, yeah. But I, I watched Snake Eyes again. I hadn't seen it since it, since I saw it in the theater. And, you know, I won't lie to you. I, I think the first thing that sticks out is, wow, that soundtrack by, um, who is the sound? He did the soundtrack to, um, uh, Mary Christmas Was it the, the, Lawrence. the Japanese composer. Yeah. 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 And it was Ryuji. so good. And it really yeah. works with the movie. I mean, I don't really, I didn't really, I had my memory of watching the movie was so bad in the, in the theater, but I enjoyed it for what it was. I mean, I thought it actually worked very well with all the knowledge that I've accumulated of the Palma since then. You got the split screen, you got all the, you got the great tracking shots, the long shots. 
was it was actually very enjoyable. But then I watched the Fury last night. <laughs> the attempts at comic relief in the first half of the movie. Um, <laughs> I, I guess you're was, talking really talking about that scene where he gets in there with the two old people and is well, that's Gordon treating Jump. his hair and stuff. Gordon Jump is the husband. Yeah, Gordon Jones, I didn't, right. I, I didn't remember that. I, I got to tell you, I didn't remember Daryl Hannah was in the movie. Yeah. I forgot Darryl about Hannah. that. And also that woman that was on the ER that played the uh, uh, the uh, head of the the head of the uh, the ER that was, you know, she, had, she was, she was yeah, walking was, with the cane. Yeah, and that stuff. was, yeah. I mean, everyone, she was one of the girls. The young girls at the Daryl Hannah yeah, table. Yeah, everyone was in the Fury. I mean, I just basically everyone who who would show up in the late nineties was in the Fury for some reason. And unfortunately, Andrew Stevens is in it, which I think he's one of the major reasons it's bad. Because I just <laughs> there's just I mean, you know, there's a lot of bad things about that movie, but uh, it but is fun. Andrew though. Stevens it, is so is so poor, and and his his. Changeover from uh, from being a young, you know, idealistic kid to like being the personification of evil is like what? What happened? <laughs> it's like they, that 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 changeover is never explained. Never. Uh, oh, big man. sequences that that big sequence that's sl- shot in slow motion. Like, why did he decide to do this? Like. This, this is not some complicated sequence. It's just someone got killed in an auto in the auto accident. And I don't know. It's just like <laughs> it's like it's making a mountain out of a molehill, really. It's oh, like, the whole thing. And, 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 it's, mean, and it's close ties to Carrie. I mean, it, with the whole telekinesis kind of theme. It is stuff. a weird movie. Yeah. It is a weird follow-up because it is so similar to Carrie. You just put Amy Irving in the SpaceX part, basically. That's really the. But, the only but honestly, thing. honestly, that's like the only movie that he really <laughs> says he's not happy with at all. And I, <laughs> in, I think it's a lot of fun. I think uh-huh. it's a lot of fun, though. Personally, I think it's not a great movie, but it's a lot of fun. I won't lie to you. It's a, I didn't I think mean, it was fun at all. <laughs> I was like, this is absurd. That whole scene oh, with him I mean, scratch, whole, scratching. I guess if you're gonna laugh at it, if it's if you look at it no, as a movie to laugh how at. How much do you think Cronenberg was influenced to do Scanners by that? You mean the, the, just the blowing up of of uh, John Cassavetes? At the well, end? I, mean, oh, I think that's thing. I think that's a great ending though. I mean, that's that's the ending. only part of the movie that <laughs> most people remember. Yeah, right. I, mean, I think it's his way of saying, "Oh, uh, this movie's an, been so fucking wacky. It's the only way I, we should end it. It's to just blow yeah, the whole I mean, thing up." They, I don't think they knew what to do, and I just love the beginning, the opening title, "Mid East, 1977." Where, where is <laughs> the Mid East? <laughs> <laughs> that whole opening middle. sequence is so stupid. It looks, no, it looks like it. some kind of bad movie that that's. Being filmed, it, it looks like it's it's like you can see almost see the directors behind the camera and stuff. No, you but know? remember, Dean, uh, Kurt Douglas is making movies like this. Remember, there's another movie he makes at the same time called Holocaust 3000, which is like a, a ripoff. <laughs> oh yes, I remember that one. That a classic. The Omen, where the, <laughs> they're twins and the and the, and the other the, the bad one survives and the umbilical cord strangles uh, the uh, the the good one and the in the womb. I've never seen it. 
Oh my God, it's crazy! I remember we stayed up late one night watching this. This was in the early '80s, and and I just remember there was a scene where um, Kurt Douglas goes into the um, where they have all the in the nursery where they have all the babies, and all the babies started crying. And my mom's like, "Yeah, that thing you used to do that when you, when you, when I had you, you cried and woke up all the babies." <laughs> thanks, thanks for reminding me of that. I had no idea. Uh, he was doing some bad movies around that oh, time. Oh, Saturn Three, yeah. remember Saturn Three, and the villain, the villain Posse. Also, yeah, I mean, he did a lot of like. This is a time where he was just, I need to pay the bills, space. I need to pay. The oh, what's God. really surprising is why? Why do they need? To, what kind of bills are they paying? Really, I mean, like he's already been in a thousand great movies. So he what kind of bills? He must have dirt. I don't know. <laughs> Uh, well, I, you can spend I wish I knew. Especially if you live in the California, L.A., you can you cut through money. <laughs> you have to. I guess you, there's pressure to keep up with the Joneses and stuff. So that's uh, true. Who, who are we talking about? I missed the whole part. Kurt what person we're talking? Kurt Douglas. Oh, Kurt Douglas. Douglas. Okay. All right. Um, I don't. You know, know speaking of the Fury, uh, I've gotten into vinyl collecting. <laughs> I, I saw that. That's very and that and that raises a fury in you. Yes, because I ordered this the soundtrack to the Fury on vinyl because it's actually it's one, a of great the, soundtrack. one of the one of the most oh, acclaimed John Williams John Williams. I thought the, the soundtrack of that was also one of its worst things because it's just some kind of disconnect with John Williams playing on on top of De Palma footage. It's just like we're. Was Pino Donaggio busy? I think it's a grandiose score in the style of what he did for Dracula for John Badham. And yeah. John Williams has done a lot of uh, outside the box stuff. I mean, people that know, I mean, I know that you know this, team. But I mean, yeah. people that know him from all the Lucas Spielberg stuff don't really realize, you know, he worked for Robert Altman and he, he you know, he did, and he, did the, for, he adapted the score for Fiddler on the Roof and, yeah. and, uh, and, uh, yeah, he did the Robert Altman movie. Um, but, you know, like, right? wouldn't it have been great if the movie would have had a score like the Images score rather than some lush... I don't know. It just it was too lush a, of a score. And uh, but See, I think okay, any movie so where a person blows up at the end, it it's an operatic approach. <laughs> I don't think subtlety <laughs> okay. really... Because it shows Cassavetti's blowing up from eight different fucking angles, one after another. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let me tell you something. I watched the the first time I watched The Fury was in the fifth grade. It was I was a weekend, and the night before we watched the Donald Sutherland Invasion of the Body Snatchers. These were both like the broadcast premieres on um, TV for these movies. Um, they they leave a vivid impression both of these movies, and the, the Fury is a lot when of fun. you're an eight year old. I, I think I was ten years old. I'm not sure, okay. nine or ten, but I they're they're fun movies. I mean, but the Fury is a fun movie. You can't take it seriously, especially at like 45. You're watching it. You're just like, oh my god, really? I mean, when he's bleaching his hair in their apartment, you know, <laughs> and talking to the old woman. I, <laughs> You've got to be kidding me! You mean this could? I'm like thinking, what executive couldn't say, hey, this needs to be cut out of the movie? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand the humor in it. <laughs> uh, 
But uh, so your vinyl collection. So first of all, do you have any other sound? Had you had soundtracks on vinyl before this? I kept some from when I was a kid. But okay. uh, I'm I'm just I just uh, you know it's the first time I've been excited about something in more than two years. <laughs> so okay, like, that's I'm, cool. I thought to myself, I'm going to start to collect vinyl. Damn it, I'm going to have a massive oh, vinyl collection. That's like so that's far. Like, I'm going to I'm going to start trying heroin. No, that music. Not, is really, really I mean, I say that heroin. I say that I say that only because when you become a I mean, look, I, I I really stole that line from Harvey Pekar because he he said, you know, collect, uh, being a collector of anything is like being hooked on drugs because you just can't stop. Right. And I've never and been so, a collector of anything, and uh, and I don't think that being a collector of vinyl is uh, of of music is a negative. <laughs> and and it's not like I'm going to spend money I don't have because I won't be able to get the records if I don't have any money. So right. Uh, but I anyways, mean, so like that's like, what that's what uh, that's what Picar uh, had. He collected vinyl of, of mostly jazz records, really. So, but he he said it was like being being a drug addict because he just yeah. he couldn't stop. He was spending all of his cash and you know even going home and saying, "I don't even have any food in the house, but I just bought these records." Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't think uh, I'm gonna um, be anything like Harvey Picard, but uh, I've got uh, 154 titles so far, and and uh, but only uh, 29 of them are soundtracks. So okay, I've got stuff like old. Uh, I've got all the original uh, James Bond LPs from John Barry and the uh, mm. that were pressed in the 60s, and then. Mm. Um, Got you know Miles Davis and Thelonious Monk, the original pressing of that, and got a lot of old classic stuff. I've got some of the special edition soundtracks too on vinyl. That's that's what's exciting to me that they're making so many really great new packages on vinyl mm. from movie soundtracks, and they're like art unto themselves. You know they they have artists commissioned to do original covers, and the, the, the vinyl is different colored and different designed and. There's a beautiful in the taxi driver. There's a beautiful uh, little uh, statement from Martin Scorsese in there about working with Bernard Herrmann. It's a very interesting story. I have of an collaboration. original taxi driver. From yeah. Seventies. Uh, yeah, I still have a lot of soundtracks on on vinyl, and I mean, we actually have about eight eight hundred, maybe a thousand uh, vinyl pieces in the house, and. And then that's just that's thirty threes. We also have probably about a thousand forty fives. Wow. Too. So, so I've got one tenth of what you have, and you're talking to me about. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've actually given up on collecting a lot of stuff. So, in other words, I've I've gone to rehab because I used to be that way about posters too. I was like, ah, but uh, especially since posters are shitty now. I don't really bother right. with them, but uh, well, I don't. Think, but if I've, I see I've a always, box of folded posters, I'll be there all day going through them. Me too. Me too. I love it. I mean, uh, yeah, I love the movie posters. When I was in LA, that's all I looked through stores that sold movie posters, and uh, I love the idea of collecting. It's just up till this point, I haven't had the discipline for it. Right. Uh, but uh, and uh, I just, I just want to get uh, uh, excited about something that uh, you know. Mm-hmm. It's, 
first time I've felt excited about anything in a long time. So what else have you bought? Here in here in St. Pete, and I'm going in the next couple of weeks when I have money to spend, um, we have the world's largest record store just in St. Petersburg, like an hour away. They have uh, three million records. Oh, wow. Uh, it's called Bananas. It's like this big <laughs> warehouse. We have two record stores in Lakeland. I mean, l- records are like... They're coming back. Vinyl's coming yeah, back. Oh, yeah, they are, big time. I do love that. I think that's one of the few things that you can say, well, this is good. <laughs> you know? Yeah. About just mass media in general. Like, this is a change that I can get behind. I'm also going on eBay. I've never looked at eBay before in my life. <laughs> I feel like I'm a good like 15 years behind the entire world. I don't, I don't, have a, I don't own a cell phone. I, 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 I've never been on eBay. It's like all these things. You're not things, missing but, anything. Yeah. Not about cell phones. Don't worry about it. I got rid of mine. Good boy. Yeah. <laughs> I got rid of it. The only time I, I feel like it. I should have a cell phone is when I drive out of town somewhere. If I'm unreachable and what if something happens mm-hmm. to my parents, I won't know about it until I get back home or something, you know. Something like that. That's what I miss. But what are the what are the pieces that you bought recently? Oh well, shit. Let me pull it up because I've got them logged. Mm. I've got each of them in protective covers, and I've got them all logged. And I've seen some photographs. Like I know you bought the uh, Serpico, which mm-hmm. I think you just bought that for the cover because that score Absolutely is not. kind of treacly. Absolutely not. <laughs> That that the album is in pristine condition. It's an original pressing, and it was a dollar ninety nine. Oh, okay. You would buy it well, too. Yeah, a <laughs> dollar ninety nine. But for the cover, not for the what's inside of it, because I pro- I would never play that score. Oh, I played it. I loved the hell out of it. But the uh, the uh, <laughs> that's another thing that's great about vinyl because you can go to like places like Goodwill or something. They have no idea what they have. So it's yes. they'll sell everything for a dollar. That's true. That's true. <laughs> I, I bought Absolutely. I bought the great I bought the best of the Ink Spots, which is one of my favorite groups from back in the fifties and sixties. That album is like worth like thirty dollars or something. They were selling it for a dollar. I was like, holy yep. shit! Uh, oh, I got something that you'd like. Uh, I got Joe Jackson's score to Mike's Murder. On oh yeah. Oh cool. Which is strange because I mean you know they didn't really use that score. They just they ended up like using about thirty seconds of it, like in a couple of scenes. But uh, so that's weird. It's really got a score by John Barry, which uh, right, yeah. The uh, but I like I really like the oddball like soundtracks that I could get, even though I have so few of them. But uh, I'm always in search of the oddball ones. So got like you know, Henry. I've got some yeah. Henry, Manc- Henry Mancini. Uh, I have both Peter Gunn and The Return of the Pink Panther from Henry Mancini. Oh, I've got the wow. special, special pressing of Rosemary's Baby that they just did that's on clear vinyl. That's a that's a great one. Uh, the Gone Girl, uh, Gatefold, um, Marconi's Rampage, which whenever I... Uh, uh, you know, want to f- feel like I absolutely don't want to relax no matter what I put on <laughs> Rampage. <laughs> That's the most tension-filled music I've ever heard in my life. Uh, and I got, you know, the stuff that I like, like external Tourist on vinyl that should be coming soon. Mm. 
That's good. I haven't bought a vinyl record in forever. I can't even remember the last one. So I've got a Sicario on the way that is that is signed by Johan Johansson. Oh, cool. By the way, they announced the Sicario sequel is going to be made without Emily Blunt, which I think is a good idea. Uh, She was very good. No, she was good at it. I just feel that that character... uh, I feel that the natural progression of that character in Sicario would have been that she would have just gotten out of that business. Or she would have gotten run over by Benicio del Toro at some point. Yes, or something like that. But I don't. I think. I think she. That was a thing that just told her to get out. Yeah. No, you're right. No, I I agree with you 100. Oh, there are two sequels though. It's not one. There are two sequels coming. Right. Yeah. And so. Yeah. But I'm. I'm. You know, it's the original uh, screenwriter. It'll be the. It'll be the Lord of the Rings of drug smuggling movies. <laughs> and I guess Benicio Del Toro is coming back, and, but he'll be the lead this time, oh, like, wow. I think. Oh, God. So. How many more families have to suffer? <laughs> it's always good. He's a, he is always a fascinating presence. I mean, I, I put is. him up there. Yeah, I think he's a really great actor, but in terms of just his presence, in terms of his presence, I put him up there with somebody like Michael Shannon, which is... Mm-hmm. Just he's got an unpredictability. He's yeah, got an yeah. unpredictability. You guys, I mean, I didn't think this was a great movie, and we might have talked about it last year. He was in a movie about Escobar. He played Escobar in Paradise Lost mm-hmm. um, in the last summer, which is okay, but yeah, there is something about him. He just he has screen presence. There's no doubt about it. It was just uh, he was very good. And, and it will be does. interesting to see him in the Star Wars movie that he's... Well, that, well, can I just say something? You have all these beautiful actors and actresses. Can they play human characters, at least? Do they have... Like, you have Lupita Nyong'o, and you have her playing a three-foot midget. I mean... Oh, I agree. I, I mean, agree completely. I, I think that would equally... I mean, she has an exquisite voice, but... She could play herself in that part, and it would have worked just as well. I mean, that was one of my criticisms of the, I mean, of the film. You know, yeah. because I really, I mean, and she thought that's not the only movie that she's in. Another movie where, well, no, she was in the Jungle Book. Yeah, she, she was in the Jungle Book. So I mean, this movie that's coming up, the Queen, uh, uh, it's the it's the chess movie. I can't remember the title of it. Queen of something. Um, uh, She's in that, and I think that'll be the first time we get to see her on screen uh, since. Uh, well, she did that. She she was in a movie real quick. Uh, she was in like one of the Liam Neeson movies or one something. One of the Liam Neeson geriatric action movies, nonstop. Yes, and she, she was a, only in it for like a second or something. I, I think. Not but, that long. I mean, if you missed, the, I think she gave out drinks to the, the passengers. <laughs> right. So even though she's been she's been voted as the most beautiful woman in the world or something by People magazine, which I totally think she deserves, by the way. Oh yeah. Uh, she she still can't get uh, her face on screen. You know, it's very rare. Yeah. So uh, I, I think that's really a shame. So now she's gone over to stage. You know, she was just nominated for a Tony. Yeah, no, no, so. I agree, Dean. I, it's one of my pet peeves with with this. You know, you you bring it back, but you want to give all these great actors and actresses. Oh, you're going to be in it, but no one will know who the hell you are because you'll be green screened or whatever. I mean, what, right? Come on, come on. 
lame. I feel the same way about Ellen DeGeneres and Finding Dory. I want to just <laughs> yeah, no, I would have welcomed that too. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> well, I uh, I do think there's a certain there's a certain similarity in the uh, in that uh, you know they they can't find a way to really put her in movies. Uh, I guess because she's a talk show host, so that's kind of weird. But, well, uh, was, they they had a hard time before she became a talk show host. I mean, if you're really wrong, Mr. Wrong, like, which which she was didn't fall wrong. into that. Uh, <laughs> even though she's incredibly beautiful, she didn't she didn't fall into the easily uh, categorized. What was the one where uh, she played a cop? What was the? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my. Oh um, she was a police officer. God, I can't remember. I can't remember God. any of her movies, really. It's like an odd movie for her to be in. Like mm-hmm. an Alan Rudolph movie or something like that. <laughs> Trixie? It wasn't Trixie. Was it Trixie? No. I'll, I'll look it up because it's going to bother me. It's <laughs> bothering me. I mean. <laughs> By the way, one more thing about OJ. Um, the reason why I know there's a generation gap is because somebody on her, the comments on our Movie Geeks United page didn't understand. I had posted because Friday was the anniversary of the release of Wolf, the Mike Nichols movie. Right, Nichols yeah. I... And I said, certainly its box office was hurt because it came out the same day as the Bronco Chase. I remember And, uh, and everybody like commented and said, no, the box office was hurt because it was an awful movie. First of all, I don't think it's awful. I just think it's so hum but uh and secondly no <laughs> it was it wasn't maybe it wouldn't be a blockbuster either way but your box office will be hurt no matter how good or bad you are if there's a cultural event that everyone is staying home and watching yeah it's yeah. like the definition of bad box office when no one is leaving their house yeah or everyone's going to the but, bar to watch it on TV but uh, people probably didn't even understand the whole what right. a cultural event that everybody's watching! What? Because right. it's not on Snapchat. That's kind of over. <laughs> it wasn't on Snapchat. You're right. It wasn't on Snapchat, first of all. So I can't tell you how many times I hear that on, on a given day. But um, but um, you know, I remember we went to go, I went to go see Wolf with several friends of mine, and I remember we you know went home with, you know with, uh, with my friend best friend Dave Hardiman, and we went to his house and turned on the TV, and all of a sudden. This was nine or ten a night. You had the, you know, they're still following the Bronco, but we had missed this because we were watching Wolf earlier, and we just saw this whole. We had no idea this was going on, and it was just like, holy shit. Um, yeah, I mean, okay, it was used. Ellen DeGeneres. She was in Ed TV. I think she was probably used the best outside of the Nemo stuff in Ed TV. But the movie where she played a cop, she was played a sergeant. It was Goodbye Lover, and the director was Roland Joffe. Oh, I do remember that. Oh, my God. I Poor Roland that. Joffe. He's just somebody. <laughs> As well, I wonder how many times in the history of all time <laughs> that phrase has ever been uttered. Poor Roland Joffe. Well, he made that oh, horrible cool. torture porn horror movie back in the yeah. late. Yeah. Remember that? God. I don't yeah. think I've ever seen a director With Alicia like... Cuthbert. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God. I, I mean, like you think about Killing Fields as his debut movie. I think that was his debut, and uh, then you just see 
that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah how do you go with Killing Joke? Joffy directed this? This is horrible. Well, he's got to keep working. You know, got to keep working, man, to keep that lifestyle going. It's <laughs> a job. Oh, boy. It's a job. Uh, I mean, well, it's either anyway. do what you love, a project you might not love, but you're actually in the process of making a movie, or, you know, you can work in an office somewhere, which you never want right. to do. Work That's why you got the movies to begin with. Right. <laughs> yes, I guess you're right. And he did the City of Joy movie with Swayze, I remember. That was yes. still a prestige movie, though, at the time. I mean, that was. And The Mission, of course. Well, yeah, oh, you yeah. can't forget The Mission. I mean, The Mission is a good movie. Good movie. <laughs> great soundtrack, really. Really great soundtrack is what I'm trying <laughs> to say. But, uh, uh, I think of things that I'd like to say afterwards, after I do an interview. So interviewing Ileana Douglas, and I said, uh, and I asked her some like random questions at the end about movies. I said, uh, which composer would you choose to compose your life? And she chose uh, uh, Morricone. And I said, wow, that's a pretty tragic life. And she said, no, he, <laughs> he, he composed, uh, he composed uh, The Mission, which is beautiful. And I oh, I said, yeah, yeah, he did. He did. And I, I so wanted to say, he, he also composed The Exorcist, too. I don't know if you're aware of it. Here's a big uh, story that got a lot of retweets uh, from our page, and most of the retweets said, God, no. Uh, Steven Spielberg wants to remake West Side Story. Really? I missed this. How did I, I thought this? he just didn't he just announce some other project too that he's doing? What is I, these guys like announce ten projects at, at a time? You know, I mean, uh, okay, well, well, he has the uh, opposite problem of Roland Joffe. <laughs> you see, yes. he's got he's got too much lined up to choose from. Yes. Uh, but but what he just announced a Walter Cronkite movie. Uh, oh, did he really? With, yeah, so he, uh, Walter Cronkite. I guess it's going to be set during the '68 Ted Offensive, and uh, oh, wow. you know his big his big statement about you know the war is not winnable and so forth. So, uh, but written by the guy who did um, Bridge of Spies. One of the guys, mm, okay. not Cohen. I bet you uh, George Clooney ends up directing that, and Spielberg will produce because his plate is too full. <laughs> I, you're probably right. I mean, you're, you're probably right. I mean, but uh, yeah, West Side Story doesn't. Of course, we don't need any remakes, but it is so perfect as a movie now that. Uh, there's just so many musicals that have never been made into movies, uh, and and recent ones that were big hits uh, that uh, I, I I would not you know feel any need to go to West Side Story, but whatever he can do whatever he wants. Will it be like Lin Manuel or that guy in it? Oh, that yeah, guy's but he in should him. he should be thinking about how to film Hamilton. You know, that's the biggest hit. Right, uh, right. But they're going to record Hamilton for Blu-ray releases. They're going to record these, you know, his last couple performances, so people, everyone gets to see it. Which I think is kind of cool. I mean, you know, because not I everyone's going to be. I guess it's cool. Be... I guess it. I guess that'll negate it having to be made into a movie. Um, well, I mean, if they can't, I mean, well, let's look at some of the recent. You know, like the. 
you guys might disagree with me, but I, I never thought Rent was a great movie. I thought that was kind of disappointing after all the hype leading up, you know. That was a bad. movie. And, then, <laughs> and you know what other one I'm disappointed in? The, the movie of the version producers. of the, rec- the producers I thought was disappointing. I, Terry. But I, never, I mean, I just it, it just sort of went on and on. And because, even... because it was shot at almost like it was on a stage. Uh-huh. It, it, and it it wasn't made cinematic. You know, I think that I talked about this. Uh, what year is it? 2016. Six years ago, because we reviewed the decade in film. Right, uh, right. Like uh, Jerry, you talked about. I think your favorite directors from the decade. Yeah. Chris talked about his favorite films from the decade, and I talked about the top ten trends of the decade. One of the trends was the musical has come back, but it's just mm-hmm. a matter of time before we kill it again. Mm-hmm. With a bunch of bad movies, right? And that's that's kind of what what's happened. And we're, uh, we did and that I'm, very well since then. And I remember my number one trend was the return of 3D. And, yeah, it was an the only uh, the only director that has really uh, sort of risen to the case, risen to the challenge of uh, you know reinvigorating musicals, is uh, is, is his name John Carney, uh, the guy who did Blunts right. and. And uh, and begin again a couple oh, of years yeah, no, ago, no, and, done, and, and Sing Street. Street this year. Yeah, he he's done a very good job, I think. I I agree with you, Dean. But otherwise, it's been very. Um, it's shoddy. rare to yeah, it's been it's rare to find <coughs> someone who can really do a musical well. I mean, even Les Miserables, which has its fan, has a huge fan base, I think they pretty fu- they I think they fudged that. Uh, oh, I mean, I just I, I remember we went to go see that Christmas Day, and you know Anne Hathaway's big moment, and I remember a woman was going to the bathroom, and I almost yelled out, "You really want to miss this? The movie goes downhill after this. I promise you, you really uh, want to miss." We had another two hours to go. I almost said, "You really want to go now?" Yeah. <laughs> well, and and what's his name? Um, Rob Marshall. He's doing a sequel to Mary Poppins. Uh, yeah, with Emily, oh, with Emily God. Blunt and and Lin Manuel Miranda, isn't it? I'm kind of surprised. And is it going to be a musical? Is it? it yes. Yeah. They're going to. Okay. He does musicals. Yeah. I know yeah, he so, does. I know he does musicals. Uh, you know, or at least he did Chicago. <laughs> Maybe Memoirs of a Geisha would have been better had it been a musical. I don't know. I mean. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I mean, he he did Chicago and did it very well, but that's an yeah. imitation. Yeah, no, that's, that's an true. imitation of Fosse. So, but we and, do have, and he me, did a great imitation of Fosse. I'll, I'll say that. Yeah, let me. We do have a. Is the movie by the guy who did Whiplash, La La Land? Is that a musical? Yeah, coming out. That so could we'll be see. very good. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see what happens with that. I always thought that you know, I mean, Spike Lee has never made a. Uh, you know, I mean, right. with with uh, with school days, the exceptional that's what's come, he's come. Uh, but uh, you know, he uh, he has you know musical sequences and well, very misplaced one in Malcolm X, uh, I think, and then <laughs> a, a, a very good one in uh, Chirac, I thought. Oh, it's so, a superb one in Chirac. Yeah. Yeah. So I I thought, uh, why doesn't he do a musical? Um, yeah, I think he'd be a good director for a musical. Um, yeah. 
I, I'd love I'd love for them to keep making musicals um, of all kinds, uh, whether it be mm-hmm. whether they be edgy or old, you know, or old fashioned. Or you know, I think it's a valuable art form that I don't want us to lose. Right, I agree. I agree with that. I agree with you. So hey. I mean, my advice to 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 Spielberg would be choose another project, a project that I mean, because West Side Story came along when. It, uh, musicals had never uh, gone out on locate to shoot on location and stuff like that. So that's how that reinvigorated the musical. I mean, do we are, do we think we're really going to do any better? I don't know. Mm, I just right. there's just so many titles out there that have never been made. And unless and if he, that's unless the he's case, planning to do unless he's planning on doing something different with it. You know, maybe he's planning to do some some different kind of reiteration, iteration like on, on interracial yeah. relationships or something. I don't know. Okay. I mean, my my I would, advice would be combine the Walter Cronkite Ted offensive story with West Side Story, oh, and uh, like, see what comes out. See what comes out. I'm gonna buy the ticket for that, man. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, Walter you know, Cronkite Romeo and Juliet. Too, I mean Romeo and Juliet, which of course is the basis of of West Side Story. Well, that's already been updated by Bob Lorman several times. So, uh, so I guess it's going to be like a Bob Lorman esque, you know, uh, uh, West Side Story. Eh, Whatever. Hey, uh, I don't know. I don't. Let me say this about because this has just occurred to me. Spielberg is great at staging for the camera. So for that reason alone, I'd be excited to see a musical from him. Uh, I mean, when when he stages things for a camera, he's very masterful at it. Mm-hmm. So I, I think he should definitely do a musical. Here's somebody that I was very surprised at his uh, ability to do a musical, and that was... Um, I know this is the. I guess this is an under. uh, What I think is an underrated movie, but Clint Eastwood's Jersey Boys, I thought, was a pretty, pretty decent, you know, throw into the genre. It was. uh, Mm -hmm. It was different, and uh, uh, you know, uh, maybe its only mistake was its only real musical number is saved for the credit sequence. Mm -hmm. Uh, but I thought that it, it it did things fairly well. Maybe I just went into it, you know, not expecting anything. And, yeah, and uh, no, that's a good point. This is really good. This is it's a good point and a good example. Dan. There, no, I don't think anyone really expected much from that. So you were kind of, I mean, at least from my perspective, I was kind of surprised how engrossed I was by it. Yeah. It was, it was good. I mean, it's not a masterpiece or anything. No, 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 no. It's just he's, a fun he's, movie. He's, he's trying different things as he gets towards the end. I mean, yeah. Sully, his Sully movie about Sully Sullenberger that comes out in September or October, uh, it's shot entirely in IMAX, I think. Mm. Uh, so he's he's challenging himself in different ways. I guess when you reach a point where you've been in movies for 60 years or however long it's been for him, you're like... Can you just give me a different ingredient here? <laughs> let, me, let me keep interested somehow. And especially considering that he's used to he's used to directing himself, which is one of the hardest things to do. And now that he's not putting himself in the in his movies anymore, uh, he's like, ah, this is too easy. Uh, 
I'm surprised he he hasn't made a career directing these movies. Christian movies. Yes. He should go and make them. Somebody needs to make one that's decent. Yeah. Hopefully he'll not, be the one. <laughs> I'm not sure this will be the one. Um, but <laughs> I mean, as many problems I have with Passion of the Christ, his uh, Passion of the Christ is a hell of a lot more artful than the other Christian movies that are God so that are being made. Man, yeah. they can't they can't make a good Christian movie to save their lives. I mean, seriously. Whatever. If their redemption fine. depended on it, they couldn't make a good Christian movie. Yeah. <laughs> but but uh, I think he can. I think that I think the Passion of the Christ does a lot of things that are that are pretty astoundingly astounding about it, or, or artistically artistic wise. But uh, it's, I, great. You know, it's photographed I, I, very I well. This, and... was, this is the best way for, the best way he has for a career redemption. Oh yeah. So to speak. yeah. Oh yeah. This is the only card he really that. has. I mean, really. It's the only card he has. And he might have run out of money. Uh, uh, who knows? He might have gone through that $540 million he made from Passion of the Christ. Um, oh, man, that paying, is so paying crazy. Lo- paying lawyer fees. <laughs> yeah, uh-huh. that's true. Uh, who knows? That's true. I, yeah, and he's had to live on it for you know, a few years but, you know, now. So. Or, excuse me, he does have a movie coming out in November, a World War II movie, Hacksaw Ridge, right? Yeah, yes. that he directed, yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. I think he needs to keep directing, and uh, and he also has a movie they're starring in, which is a typical kind of blood revenge thriller, um, and he's always good in those acting wise. I don't know. Oh, look, I, you know, I said it. I don't. I think you know, because I Edge of Darkness is decent. Um, I thought his turn as a villain in The Expendables Three was good. I mean, I'm not going to discount this guy. I mean, yeah, I mean, I'm. I'm disappointed in him and some of the things that he said over the last 15 years but and gone. But, I mean, he does still come out. and I mean, I like Apocalypto for what it is. I'm not going to, you know, that was a good... Um, was I, think a movie. I think he's a good good filmmaker, and I do think he's a good actor in terms of yeah. his strength of presence on screen. I always have. But, uh, hey, I think this will be the next big uh, series that everybody will be talking about. Uh, they just came out with a trailer for it. It's for Netflix. It's set in the 80s. It's an homage to kind of like the Joe Dante, Spielberg-y 80s oh, yeah, thr- yeah. Thr- thriller kid horror kind of stuff. It's called Stranger Things. Mm-hmm. Uh, it looks pretty amazing <laughs> looking, looking at the preview of it. It looks like it's going to be a great, fun series. And one of the writers in it. Yeah. Hey, Who doesn't want to see that? that? I, I Has anybody checked out the new Cameron Crowe series? Rhodey. No, no, no. I have not watched it yet. I have not. <clears throat> that sounds like a good move for him. Oh, I thought you were going to say, is it better than Aloha? <laughs> I guess so. <laughs> now, let me ask you, when Aloha is that, that going to come on? Is that only going to be on Hulu or is it going to be on? Where will it show up? It's on um, one of the, the new... What the Stranger it's Things what? or no no, 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 no uh, Cameron uh, That's a Showtime, isn't it? Oh, it's Showtime. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, okay. Uh, other news: uh, Lady Gaga will star opposite Bradley Cooper in the remake of A Star Is Born. Why do people keep remaking A Star Is Born? 
another one that I think is like, my God. But uh, then again, it has been a really long time since the last one, and it'll be completely new for... Is that the Chris Christopherson one with Barbara Streisand? Yes. And the Judy Garland, uh, James Mason one, and yeah, oh yeah. The one in the thirties, of course. There was they've been talking Why about remaking getting... it for a long time. Clint Eastwood wanted yeah. to remake it with Beyonce. A few mm-hmm. right. Oh yeah. I guess it's just a way to get a uh you know, a a big, you know, uh musical star in a uh I mean I guess yeah. because A, it's it's people don't like normal musicals anymore, real musicals where people burst out into singing. So, uh, you know, while walking down the street. So this is an opportunity to make a, uh, you know, a musical, but not really make one. And uh, and they can finally have Lady Gaga sing in a movie. So, uh, you know, I mean, I guess, uh, whatever. <laughs> Dean, <laughs> you know. have, you, have, you see, have you seen anything this past week or two, Dean? Uh, I saw uh, Maggie's Plan, which I loved. Uh, oh, I think good, that's, good, good. I think that's definitely um, Greta Gerwig's, uh, you know, best thing since Frances Ha. Uh, and uh, I also loved, you know, Julianne Moore and and um, Ethan Hawke in it as well. Very, very smartly. Smartly directed, uh, a little bit more heart, you know, a little bit more sentimental than your average, like, uh, you know, it's being compared to Woody Allen uh, movies, and it has some similarities because it's kind of a satire of, of you know, overeducated people. Yeah. But um, uh, I thought it had a lot more, a little bit more heart to it without being cloying or overly sentimental. Right, um, right. I agree. I agree with you 100%, Dean. Uh, and I just thought she was, she was, you know, I felt, I did feel like there's a moment where the movie kind of moves over to tell the, uh, Moore and, uh, Hawk, Ethan Hawk story a little bit more fully. And I felt the movie lose energy because, you know, Greta Gerwig is so good in it. And mm-hmm. I love how, how she, um, is able to make things that really normally wouldn't be funny funny. She yeah. like, she makes she makes things funny by the her, the movement of her body. She she seems to have a different kind of walk in almost every movie that she does, and it, it's just she's just funny. She's awkward and gangly, and, and and she she does she's not afraid to 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 do that in a movie, and and I think that's great and. Um, and uh, she she just looks uh, just as great as she ever had. And uh, uh, I watched The Witch, um, and uh, I liked it, but I don't ever want to watch it again because it's yeah. kind of a little bit like homework. <laughs> uh, um, but I I thought that it was you know well done. Although I still don't understand why you know when a movie is set in the past, why color has to be drained out of everything. I mean, I know they wanted to make everything look dreary, but they really have to make it almost a – I mean, it was nearly a black-and-white movie. It, it would have been better if they would have just shot it in black-and-white and just left it at that. Uh, but, you know, to you know, 
And then I know this color started seeping into the movie when uh, yeah. when evil became more more prevalent, right. you right. know. And I thought, what is that? So color is evil, or what? I you know I don't know what that what the visual scheme is supposed to mean. Uh, but I thought the actors were really good. I thought that it it cleaved pretty well to its you know old old English sort of language pretty well, and uh, and it was uh, it was chilling at moments. Didn't really think it was. I could easily see where a lot of people would think it'd be boring. Uh, oh, uh, I mean, a lot of people. I mean, boring. a lot of people I know weren't crazy about. I, I thought it was actually. Yeah, this genre just. I'm. I'm gonna. I mean, I'm just gonna come out. I think this genre just sucks. This genre just sucks. So when you get something like The Witch, of course it's gonna stick out. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I mean, it's just I mean, in the stupid. in the realm of horror movies, this one is. This one has a lot of thought in it, and a lot of care. I don't think it had very much to say about the time period. I think it was merely just a straightforward adaptation of a you know what folk tale. I, I I think the underlying theme uh, is always a go-to when you're making a horror movie involving a teenage girl. It's always going to be about the threat, that, the threatening nature of her becoming a woman and populating uh, and all of that. I think that's always going to be like the undercurrent, and especially about witches. Crap. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, exactly. Yeah, but you really like uh, seeing her get naked at the end. Hey, um, I, it and, was and definitely watched, the best witch movie since uh, uh, Lord of Salem, Lords of Salem, which I think is a better movie, by the way. You know, we're friends with Rod Laurie on Facebook. Uh, my most interesting encounter with him is—I mean, I've interviewed him three or four times, three times I think on the show, and he's always an engaging interview, very smart. And I hated Straw Dogs, and I'd already talked to him about Straw Dogs before I watched it, and then I watched it, and I like hated it. And I guess I posted something on Facebook about hating it, forgetting that he was my friend, and so, <laughs> and so he commented on it, like oh, I was having a good day before I read this, and we went back and forth on it a little bit. But um, oh wow, yeah. So I felt bad about that. And then when Philip Seymour Hoffman died, I was it Hoffman? Did they work together? Somebody died. Movie where they worked on. I mean, somebody died that they and that had worked with Rod Laurie. Oh, Gandolfini. Oh, Gandolfini. Gandolfini. Yes. Uh, I approached him about coming on for Gandolfini, and he didn't want to. Um, but anyway, I say this because uh, he's posting photos from the movie he just finished directing for National Geographic. Who would have thought Rod Laurie would have directed a movie based on a Bill O'Reilly book? So I'm, never, I'm still kind of trying to wrap my head around that. <laughs> he did. He did Killing Reagan. Mm. Okay. Tim Matheson and Cynthia Nixon. He pro- it probably wow. was like it's, it looked as though it was maybe a two week shoot or something. Mm. Okay. So it comes out in the fall. By the way, I should mention another movie that I watched. That I watched it just. It's. I, I think it's gotten a little bit of a theatrical release, but I, I watched it on uh, VOD, and uh, it's called Approaching the Unknown. It's a. Uh, I guess it's best. Uh, you know, it's popular to describe it as The Martian without the laughs. <laughs> oh wow! Uh, okay. Because it's about a, a, a. It's Mark Strong playing a a. a uh, astronaut that's headed to Mars and basically mm-hmm. starts with the blast off and 
and uh and then the sort of troubled uh troubled journey uh and uh even though <clears throat> i don't really th- i wouldn't really recommend the movie cuz i did find it rather boring uh like there's more they could have used some laughs in this uh what i did like about it was that it did what the martian was afraid to do which was to stick with the stick with the uh with the main character throughout the entire movie and not really cut back to earth or anything like that so it made it a little bit more tense uh again i wouldn't necessarily recommend the movie though i could see maybe some hardcore sci-fi people might be into it uh i judging judging by the comments that were left on imdb though it does, that doesn't seem to be the case a lot of people <laughs> thought it was the worst movie ever but uh I thought I thought it was okay, and also watched Manson Family Van- Vacation finally, uh, which has one of the Duplass brothers playing a <clears throat> a brother uh, of a uh, of an adopted kid, uh, and I can't remember the actor who plays the adopted kid. And they they get back together and go and visit the Manson uh, the Manson you know crime scenes together uh-huh. to sort of get back together again and. And it kind of addressed something, I guess this is a little bit of a spoiler, so if you want to watch the movie, uh, what you'll find out is that one of the, the the adopted kid is actually one of Manson's kids that were, you know, uh, that he, that he uh, sired in his family days. Uh, and uh, I thought that was interesting. I, I, there was there was something interesting there. So that's kind of a that's a movie that I I, re- I recommend with reservations. But I thought yeah, they actually shot pretty, it in none of the real locations of the Manson family. Yes, which you know, like, they weren't when they visit when that. they visited the gate of the Tate House. That wasn't the real gate. When they visited the yes. Labianca House. That wasn't that neighborhood at all. Yes. There's no there's no fence on any of those. Did you watch it? Did you so you watched? The movie? Yeah, I watched it because I interviewed the director or something. Um, okay. And so, uh, what were your was that? Did you? I, I watch was just it? watching it as a Manson uh, case uh, aficionado. So. Yes. I'm not an aficionado of Manson. Just that whole period of time in that in Hollywood and stuff. So I was interested <laughs> in that. Our list for tonight comes courtesy of Oscar Schindler. Oh, God. Wow, I'm this is going to be a long that. list. <laughs> yeah, really. All the people that we see it saved. I Top 3,000 people that Schindler saved. Better than that. Our list tonight comes courtesy of Dean Treadway from the website RupertPubkinSpeaks.com. Ah, yes. These are the uh, underrated films of 1986. A few titles that Dean wanted to discuss. Uh, I will say the title, and Dean, you can say a few things about it, okay? Okay. All right. First title, from 1986. These are underrated films, in Dean's opinion. The Green Ray, a.k.a. Summer, which is from Eric Romer. Yeah, that's a, it's just a really beautiful uh, movie. I mean, one of Romer's best, I think. Certainly one of his best of the 80s. Uh, uh but uh, it's a really, really uh, beautiful story uh, about a woman that gets uh, left behind by her friend right as they're going to go on vacation together. So she has to go on her holiday by herself. 
and she's extremely lonely and very neurotic, very socially inept, and she goes to various places trying to find anybody that she can talk to, and uh, the woman's played by Marie uh, Riviere, uh, and I think she really gives a really, really great performance as somebody that you kind of you're kind of irritated with at times, and then sometimes you 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 really feel for her and her loneliness, and uh, and then it's just got the most unbelievable ending uh, uh, that I won't I won't talk about here, but it's uh, it, it's really a really superb movie. Like like many of Romer's movies, it needs it needs patience because it's largely dialogue driven, um, and uh, the dialogue is very good, but it's also very intellectual. Uh, so some people might not get what they're talking about. Really, I mean, I, even I was like, well, I'm not I'm not familiar with what they're talking about here, but it's still good. Uh, I, I still found it very very moving. And it's a movie that got great reviews. A lot of these are movies that got great reviews when they came out, but they, you know, still when you go to IMDb and and look at how many people have seen them, you know, because you can go to IMDb and look a search, look up a search of the movies that came out in a given year, and uh, they're listed on the basis of their popularity or whatever, and. Uh, out of you know, there's 50 listings on each page, and you don't come to Summer or The Green Ray until you know seven or eight pages in. So a lot of people haven't seen it. Uh, next up, Round Midnight. Is oh doesn't, yeah, doesn't Scorsese have a role in Round Midnight? He does. He plays the lead character's uh, New York uh, agent. Uh, the, the movie largely takes place in France. It's with Dexter Gordon, as a, uh, a who was a legendary saxophonist uh, in in the in the fifties and forties, fifties and sixties, uh, and on. Uh, this was his only movie that he did, and was nominated for Best Actor. I think he should have won. Uh, and he plays a. Uh, some people say he's playing himself, which I think is stupid. Uh, but he's he's playing a, uh, a jazz saxophonist who's struggling with alcoholism in in uh, in Paris, um, and uh, this is sort of his uh, you know a rare last chance to play for an appreciating audience, and uh, and he strikes up a friendship with a fan played by Francois Clouzet, uh, and uh, uh, it's just a beautiful story of friendship and. And the music is fantastic, of course, by uh, Herbie Hancock, who won an Oscar for original score, which is not mostly an original score. It's really, you know, adaptations of jazz classics and stuff. But uh, there's a couple of original pieces in it, and um, it's it's just a uh, uh, you know it's it's really a great movie. I think it's a masterpiece, really, and uh, uh, really deserves to be seen on a big screen because it's it's really beautiful widescreen. Uh, but it's really about Dexter Gordon's performance in it. That's just you've just never heard anybody with a voice like his. You've never uh, seen a performance quite like this. It's really unaffected by any kind of uh, you know any kind of acting technique or whatever. It's just uh, it's just very real and uh, and very moving. So dancing in the dark. From Canada, yeah. not to be confused with Dancer 
in the dark. Right. This is a really odd movie. Probably kind of hard to find now. I I uh we had a we still have a copy that's VHS. Uh um and um it stars Martha Henry as a uh, it's basically almost a one woman show really where she's the uh, uh she's the the wife of a uh uh you know a businessman and she basically spends her time cleaning the house and things and and she gets so obsessive with her uh with her uh her routine that she kind of frets herself into the insane asylum and uh it's just a really unusual movie uh um about a about you know mental illness uh and she's she's superb in it it's a canadian film uh, uh leon marr i think is the director and just a just a a really really unusual movie. kind of probably very very hard to find though uh night mother sissy spacek and ann bancroft yeah, someone said uh, to me, uh, well, okay, so this is basically, this is a Pulitzer Prize winning play, uh, <clears throat> uh, won the award, and I think won a few Tonys in the early 80s uh, when, uh, uh, I guess it was Kathy Bates and Ann Petoniak who were in the original show. Uh, um, it's about a woman who is living with her mother after um after suffering a few life setbacks uh her son's a, a, a you know a drug addict who's out on the street somewhere uh she has a you know kind of a deep debilitating disease uh and uh her, her marriage you know went kaput and so she tells the uh tells her mother uh played by Ann Bancroft Course, it's Sissy Spacek in the lead. Uh, Anne Bycroft uh, is playing her mother, and she tells her that, well, tonight I'm going to kill myself. And she spends the entire movie kind of getting her personal effects together and giving her instructions on what to do after she's dead. And then meanwhile, it's uh, Anne Bancroft, who's a little over the top of the movie. I can sort of understand it, but I, I think they could have found someone better. Um uh, Anne Bancroft was a lot better in another 1986 movie called 84 Charing Cross Road, uh, which was a movie that I didn't include on the list, but it's also underrated. But uh, at any rate, she, it's really Sissy Spacek's show, and she's uh, she's superb in it. And uh, it's a it's a kind of a movie that um, goes places about you know people. When you tell people you're depressed, people are always trying to fix it for you. Uh, that's not really the right way to take, to go about it. You, can, you should sit there and listen to them, but there's no fixing it. Uh, and so that's kind of what this this movie is about. And it kind of, uh, you know, her 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 reasons are she's she's well reasoned in her depression. So uh, it's kind of a Pro suicide movie in a way, which is kind of strange, but uh, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it's a little stagey at times. Sometimes it's really well done, uh, but uh, you know, photographed really well. But uh, it's really Sissy Spacek that really makes it worth watching. Okay, just between friends, this is the Mary Tyler Moore, Christine Lottie movie. Was this a made for HBO? 
or do I just remember no, seeing it? No, it feels it on like HBO? that though. I mean, it, the, the the director is Alan Burns, who came from television, came from uh, from it was a writer for Mar- the Mary Tyler Moore show. He, he was nominated for an Oscar for doing the screenplay to one of my favorite movies, uh, A Little Romance. And uh, and most of his work is done for TV, and it is very TV like. It feels like it feels like something like Finnegan Begin Again or something like that. That uh, HBO movie with uh, Robert Preston. Uh, but uh, <clears throat> this was actually actually his only theatrical release, and Mary Tyler Moore plays an aerobics instructor who strikes up a friendship with a TV reporter played by um, Christine Lottie, and she's really good in it. And uh, what she doesn't know is that <clears throat> her husband, played by uh, Ted Danson, Mary Tyler Moore's husband, is actually having an affair with Christine Lottie uh, because they work at the TV station together. And then there's there's a tragedy that happens and uh, some revelations uh, about that uh, that you know that affair and uh it's it's very good i wouldn't say it's a it's like a it's like a really good tv movie uh and um it still has that tv movie quality to it sam waterston is in it as well and uh it's very 80s and everything but uh i don't know there's something about it that i really like i found i, yeah. I found the uh, story to i remember be seeing it on hbo good. a lot when i was a kid uh and i i remember seeing this on PBS uh, a lot when I was a kid too. This next title, so I always thought it was made for public television. I don't know if it was or not. Seize the day with Robin Williams. Yeah, it uh, it was. It wasn't really. You know, I don't think that it was necessarily made for public television, but uh, public TV at, at that time had American Playhouse, and I think it was acquired mm-hmm. by American Playhouse. Uh, yeah. But uh, I think that it was made for made for a theatrical release, and and then they decided to go with TV with it. But it's one of uh, Robin Williams' best performances, and also one of his first. That's just totally dramatic. There's not an in, there's not a there's not a shred of comedy in this, even though it has a lot of comedic actors in it here and there. Jerry Stiller is in it and so forth. But um, uh, he plays a he plays kind of a loser salesman uh uh in the fifties whose life is you know spiraling downwards his marriage is over he can't see his kids he doesn't he's just walked out of a job he has a he has a father that just absolutely is just the coldest person in the world uh and uh and it's basically him just trying to kind of sweating it out sweating sweating all the way through it you know uh chain smoking and and just trying to find even a shred of happiness. It's not a very like happy list of movies, by the way. But is this a Saul Bellow story? Or? Yes, yes, exactly. It's a it's based on a Saul Bellow tale. So uh, so there's a uh, there's like a Jewish element in it. Um, that uh, uh, there's an angle of that in it, um, and uh, you know it's got tons of. Uh, you know, interesting character actors. You know, Tom Aldridge, who played, you know, Carmela's father on uh, The Sopranos, is in it, and um, Tony Roberts and Aline Heckert, uh, uh, Jerry Stiller, as I said, Fivish Finkel is in it. Wow. Uh, so, 
it's a it's a very good movie, but it's it is extremely depressing. The, the but no Margot. Uh, God, what's that actress name that we always bring up? Margot. Uh, Margot Gordner. Mar- no Margot Gordner. No Margot Gordner. Damn it, Dean. Let me down. No. You need to make Marjo a list Gortner of was really off of his game in the eighties. He, he was You need to make a list of uh, the best Marjo Gortner films. Uh, I will. <laughs> I'll make a list. Uh, uh, this uh, final title uh gave the attention of one of our Facebook followers who said, Oh, I saw that movie. It made me want to kill myself. <laughs> <laughs> wait, 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 wait. I think I remember this. Well, what movie was this one? Uh it is uh, When the Wind Blows. Oh yeah! Oh my God! Oh. It is depressing. It's uh, it's a animated film by Jimmy Murakami, who has uh, had adapted some of the uh, writers. It's written by Raymond Briggs, a famous writer of children's books uh, like Father Christmas and The Snowman. Mm-hmm. He had made those those stories into short thirty minute films that would be played around Christmas time. This was a theatrical release. Um, uh, it tells the story of two elderly people uh, voiced uh, living in Britain, uh, voiced by uh, Peggy Ashcroft and John Mills, mm-hmm. uh, who are living, you know, quite quite a ways away from London. But they hear that uh, London is being attacked by a nuclear bomb. And so they're being of the World War II generation, they decide to just hunker down just like they did during the Blitz. And, of course, that doesn't really work out for them. Uh, I, I have this book somewhere. I have the book, that, the storybook that this, 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 the book that this is based on. I remember we got it. Um, yeah. And it's, uh, it's done in that same sort of style, that sort of charming kind of big-headed kind of style that, mm-hmm. that uh, uh, I guess, uh, Briggs and maybe and the animator have, uh, but uh, it is it is ridiculously bleak uh, to see these two characters who are so sweet, uh, kind of spiraled, uh, you know, into into you know, uh, underneath the the pressure of you know nuclear fallout. You know, <laughs> things don't things don't happen. Nothing good happens in this movie. So. But uh, it is one of the most depressing animated films. I can only think of a couple more that are as depressing, like you know, Warship Down or uh, the Plague Dogs, uh, maybe. But uh, uh, Plague Dogs is almost unwatchable in its depressing aspects. But uh, but this is this is very good. The dialogue's great. It's got a score by Roger Waters uh, from Pink Floyd. It's got a Title song by uh, uh, David Bowie, and uh, and uh, uh, you know it's kind of, it's it's interesting on that level too. Uh, but it's just it's just a very very good movie. As far as this depressing list goes, you know this this is one of the ones that I would say, uh, you know, is maybe a little less depressing than the others. I don't know. <laughs> People always equate the 80s with, like, happy nostalgia. (laughs) This flies in the face of that perception. 